Section 6 of The Great Events by Famous Historians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd. The Rise and Spread of Christianity, A.D. 33, by Joseph Ernest Renan, Part 2. Till now, the Church of Jerusalem presented itself to the outside world as a little Galilean colony. The friends whom Jesus had made at Jerusalem and its environs, such as Lazarus, Martha, Mary of Bethany, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus had disappeared from the scene. The Galilean group who pressed around the Twelve alone remained compact and active. The proselytism of the faithful was chiefly carried on by means of struggling conversions, in which the fervor of their souls was communicated to their neighbors. Their preachings under the porticos of Solomon were addressed to circles not at all numerous, but the effect of this was only the more profound. Their discourses consisted principally of quotations from the Old Testament, by which it was sought to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. The real preaching was the private conversations of these good and sincere men. It was the reflection, always noticeable in their discourses, of the words of Jesus. It was, above all, their piety, their gentleness. The attraction of communistic life carried with it also a great deal of force. Their houses were a sort of hospitals, in which all the poor and the forsaken found asylum and succor. One of the first to affiliate himself with the Rising Society was a Cypriot, named Joseph Halevi, or the Levite. Like the others, he sold his land and carried the price of it to the feet of the Twelve. He was an intelligent man with a devotion proof against everything and a fluent speaker. The apostles attached him closely to themselves and called him Barnaba, that is to say, the son of prophecy or of preaching. He was accounted, in fact, of the number of the prophets, that is to say, of the inspired preachers. Later on we shall see him play a capital part. Next to St. Paul he was the most active missionary of the first century. A certain Mnason, his countryman, was converted about the same time. Cyprus possessed many Jews. Barnabas and Mnason were undoubtedly Jewish by race. The intimate and prolonged relations of Barnabas with the church at Jerusalem induces the belief that Syro-Chaldaic was familiar to him. A conquest almost as important as that of Barnabas was that of one John who bore the Roman surname of Marcus. He was a cousin of Barnabas and was circumcised. His mother, Mary, enjoyed an easy competency. She was likewise converted, and her dwelling was more than once made the rendezvous of the apostles. These two conversions appear to have been the work of Peter. The first flame was thus spread with great rapidity. The men, the most celebrated of the apostolic century, were almost all gained over to the cause in two or three years, by a sort of simultaneous attraction. It was a second Christian generation, similar to that which had been formed five or six years previously upon the shores of Lake Tiberias. This second generation had not seen Jesus, and could not equal the first in authority. 
but it was destined to surpass it in activity and in its love for distant missions. One of the best known among the new converts was Stephen, who, before his conversion, appears to have been only a simple proselyte. He was a man full of ardor and of passion. His faith was the most fervent, and he was considered to be favored with all the gifts of the Spirit. Philip, who like Stephen was a zealous deacon and evangelist, attached himself to the community about the same time. He was often confounded with his namesake, the Apostle. Finally, there were converted at this epoch Andronicus and Junia, probably husband and wife, who, like Aquila and Priscilla later on, were the model of an apostolic couple devoted to all the duties of missionary work. They were of the blood of Israel and were in the closest relations with the apostles. The new converts, when touched by grace, were all Jews by religion, but they belonged to two different classes of Jews. The one class was the Hebrews, that is to say, the Jews of Palestine, speaking Hebrew or rather Armenian, reading the Bible in the Hebrew text. The other class was Hellenists, that is to say, Jews speaking Greek, and reading the Bible in Greek. These last were further subdivided in two classes, the one being of Jewish blood, the other being proselytes, that is to say, people of non-Israelitish origin, allied in diverse degrees to Judaism. These Hellenists, who almost all came from Syria, Asia Minor, Egypt or Kyrene, lived at Jerusalem in distinct quarters. They had their separate synagogues and formed thus little communities apart. Jerusalem contained a great number of these special synagogues. It was in these that the words of Jesus found the soil prepared to receive it and to make it fructify. The primitive nucleus of the church at Jerusalem had been composed wholly and exclusively of Hebrews. The Aramaic dialect, which was the language of Jesus, was alone known and employed there. But we see that from the second or third year after the death of Jesus, Greek was introduced in the little community, where it soon became dominant. In consequence of their daily relations with the new brethren, Peter, John, James, Jude, and in general the Galilean disciples acquired the Greek with much more facility than if they had already known something of it. The Palestinian dialect came to be abandoned from the day in which people dreamed of a widespread propaganda, a provincial patois which was rarely written and which was not spoken beyond Syria was as little adapted as could be to such an object. Greek, on the contrary, was necessarily imposed on Christianity. It was at the time the universal language, at least for the eastern basin of the Mediterranean. It was, in particular, the language of the Jews, who were dispersed over the Roman Empire. The conversions to Christianity became soon much more numerous among the Hellenists than among the Hebrews. The old Jews of Jerusalem were but little drawn toward the sect of provincials, moderately advanced in the single science, that a Pharisee appreciated the science of the law. The position of the little church in regard to Judaism was, as with Jesus himself, rather equivocal. 
but every religious or political party carries in itself a force that dominates it and obliges it despite itself to revolve in its own orbit the first christians whatever their apparent respect for judaism was were in reality only jews by birth or by exterior customs the true spirit of the sect came from another source that which grew out of the official judaism was the talmud but christianity has no affinity with the talmudic school this is why christianity found special favor among the parties the least jewish belonging to judaism the rigid orthodoxists took to it but little it was the newcomers people scarcely catechized who had not been to any of the great schools free from routine and not initiated into the holy tongue which lent an ear to the apostles and the disciples this family of simple and united brethren drew associates from every quarter in return for that which these brought they obtained an assured future the society of a congenial brotherhood and precious hopes the general custom before entering the sect was for each one to convert his fortune into specie these fortunes ordinarily consisted of small rural semi-barren properties and difficult of cultivation it had one advantage especially for unmarried people it enabled them to exchange these plots of land against funds sunk in an assurance society with a view to the kingdom of god even some married people came to the fore in that arrangement and precautions were taken to ensure that the associates brought all that they really possessed and did not retain anything outside the common fund indeed seeing that each one received out of the latter share not in proportion to what one put in but in proportion to one's needs every reservation of property was actually a theft made up on the community the christian communism had religion for a basis while modern socialism has nothing of the kind under such a social constitution the administrative difficulties were necessarily very numerous whatever might be the degree of fraternal feeling which prevailed between two factions of a community whose language was not the same misapprehensions were inevitable it was difficult for well-descended jews not to entertain some contempt for their co-religionists who were less noble in fact it was not long before murmurs began to be heard the hellenists who each day became more numerous complained because their widows were not so well treated at the distributions as those of the hebrews till now the apostles had presided over the affairs of the treasury but in face of these protestations they felt the necessity of delegating to others this part of their powers they proposed to the community to confide this administrative cares to seven experienced and considerate men the proposition was accepted the seven chosen were stephanas or stephen philip prochorus nicanor timon parmenas and nicholas stephen was the most important of the seven and in a sense their chief to the administrators thus designated were given the syriac name of shamashin they were also sometimes called the seven 
to distinguish them from the twelve. Such, then, was the origin of the diaconate, which is found to be the most ancient ecclesiastical function, the most ancient of sacred orders. Later, all the organized churches, in imitation of that of Jerusalem, had deacons. The growth of such an institution was marvelous. It placed the claims of the poor on an equality with religious services. It was a proclamation of the truth that social problems are the first which should occupy the attention of mankind. It was the foundation of political economy in the religious sense. The deacons were the first preachers of Christianity. As organizers, financiers, and administrators, they filled a yet more important part. These practical men, in constant contact with the poor, the sick, the women, went everywhere, observed everything, exhorted, and were most efficacious in converting people. They accomplished more than the apostles, who remained on their seats of honor at Jerusalem. They were the founders of Christianity, in respect of that which it possessed, which was most solid and enduring. At an early period, women were admitted to this office. They were designated, as in our day, by the name of sisters. At first, widows were selected. Later, virgins were preferred. The tact which guided the primitive church in all this was admirable. The grand idea of consecrating by a sort of religious character and of subjecting to a regular discipline the women who were not in the bonds of marriage is wholly Christian. The term widow became synonymous with a religious person, consecrated to God, and by consequence a deaconess. In those countries where the wife, at the age of twenty-four, is already faded, where there is no middle state between the infant and the old woman, it was a kind of a new life, which was created for that portion of the human species the most capable of devotion. These women, constantly going to and fro, were admirable missionaries of the new religion. The bishop and the priest as we now know them did not yet exist. Still, the pastoral ministry, that intimate familiarity of souls, not bound by ties of blood, had already been established. This latter has ever been the special gift of Jesus, and a kind of heritage from him. Jesus had often said that to everyone he was more than a father and a mother, and that in order to follow him it was necessary to forsake those the most dear to us. Christianity placed some things above family, it instituted brotherhood and spiritual marriage, the ancient form of marriage which placed the wife unreservedly in the power of the husband was pure slavery. The moral liberty of the woman began when the church gave her in Jesus a guide and a confidant, who should advise and console her, listen always to her, and on occasion counsel resistance on her part. Woman needs to be governed and is happy in so being, but it is necessary that she should love him who governs her. This is what neither ancient societies, nor Judaism, nor Islamism have been able to do. Woman has never had, up to the present time, a religious conscience, a moral individuality, an opinion of her own, except in Christianity. It was now about the year 36. Tiberius at Capreae has little idea of the enemy to the empire which is growing up. In two or three years the sect had made surprising progress. 
it numbered several thousand of the faithful. It was already easy to foresee that its conquests would be effected chiefly among the Hellenists and proselytes. The Galilean group which had listened to the master, though preserving always its precedence, seemed as if swamped by the floods of newcomers speaking Greek. One could already perceive that the principal parts were to be played by the latter. At the time at which we are arrived, no pagan, that is to say, no man without some anterior connection with Judaism, had entered into the church. Proselytes, however, performed very important functions in it. The circle de provenance of the disciples had likewise largely extended. It is no longer a simple little college of Palestinians. We can count in it people from Cyprus, Antioch and Cyrene, and from almost all the points of the eastern coasts of the Mediterranean, where Jewish colonies had been established. Egypt alone was wanting in the primitive church, and for a long time continued to be so. It was inevitable that the preachings of the new sect, although delivered with so much reserve, should revive the animosities which had accumulated against its founder, and eventually brought about his death. The Sadducee family of Hanan, who had caused the death of Jesus, was still reigning. Joseph Caiaphas occupied up to 36 the sovereign pontificate, the effective power of which he gave over to his father-in-law Hanan and to his relatives John and Alexander. These arrogant and pitiless men viewed with impatience a troop of good and holy people, without official title, winning the favor of the multitude. Once or twice Peter and John and the principal members of the Apostolic College were put in prison and condemned to flagellation. This was the chastisement inflicted on heretics. The authorization of the Romans was not necessary in order to apply it. As we might indeed suppose, these brutalities only served to inflame the ardor of the apostles. They came forth from the Sanhedrim, where they had just undergone flagellation, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for him whom they loved. Eternal puerility of penal repressions applied to things of the soul. They were regarded, no doubt, as men of order, as models of prudence and wisdom. These blunderers, who seriously believed in the year 36, to gain the upper hand of Christianity by means of a few strokes of a whip. These outrages proceeded chiefly from the Sadducees, that is to say, from the upper clergy, who crowded the temple and derived from it immense profits. We do not find that the Pharisees exhibited toward the sect the animosity they displayed to Jesus. The new believers were strict and pious people, somewhat resembling in their manner of life the Pharisees themselves. The rage which the latter manifested against the founder arose from the superiority of Jesus, a superiority which he was at no pains to dissimulate. His delicate railleries, his wit, his charm, his contempt for hypocrites had kindled a ferocious hatred. The apostles, on the contrary, were devoid of wit. They never employed irony. The Pharisees were at times favorable to them. Many Pharisees had even become Christians. The terrible anathemas of Jesus against Phariseeism had not yet been written and the accounts of the words of the Master 
were neither general nor uniform. These first Christians were, besides, people so inoffensive that many persons of the Jewish aristocracy, who did not exactly form part of the sect, were well disposed toward them. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who had known Jesus, remained no doubt with the church in the bonds of brotherhood. The most celebrated Jewish doctor of the age, Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder, grandson of Hillel, a man of broad and very tolerant ideas, spoke, it is said, in the Sanhedrim, in favor of permitting gospel preaching. The author of the Acts credits him with some excellent reasoning, which ought to be the rule of conduct of governments on all occasions when they find themselves confronted with novelties of an intellectual or moral order. If this work is frivolous, said he, leave it alone, it will fall of itself. If it is serious, how dare you resist the work of God? In any case, you will not succeed in stopping it. Gamaliel's words were hardly listened to. Liberal minds in the midst of opposing fanaticism have no chance of succeeding. A terrible commotion was produced by the deacon Stephen. His preaching had, as it would appear, great success. Multitudes flocked around him, and these gatherings resulted in acrimonious quarrels. It was chiefly Hellenists, or proselytes, habitués of the synagogue, called Libertini, people of Cyrene, of Alexandria, of Cilicia, of Ephesus, who took an active part in these disputes. Stephen passionately maintained that Jesus was the Messiah, that the priests had committed a crime in putting him to death, that the Jews were rebels, sons of rebels, people who rejected evidence. The authorities resolved to dispatch this audacious preacher. Several witnesses were suborned to seize upon some words in his discourses against Moses. Naturally, they found that for which they sought. Stephen was arrested and led into the presence of the Sanhedrim. The sentence with which they reproached him was almost identical with the one which led to the condemnation of Jesus. They accused him of saying that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the traditions attributed to Moses. It is quite possible, indeed, that Stephen had used such language. A Christian of that epoch could not have had the idea of speaking directly against the law, inasmuch as all still observed it. As for traditions, however, Stephen might combat them as Jesus had himself done. Nevertheless, these traditions were foolishly ascribed by the Orthodox to Moses, and people attributed to them a value equal to that of the written law. Stephen defended himself by expounding the Christian thesis. With a wealth of citations from the written law, from the Psalms, from the prophets, and wound up by reproaching the members of the Sanhedrim with the murder of Jesus. Yes, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, said he to them, you will then ever resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers also have done? Which of the prophets have not your fathers prosecuted? They have slain those who announced the coming of the Just One, whom you have betrayed, and of whom you have been the murderers. This law that you have received from the mouth of angels you have not kept. 
At these words, a scream of rage interrupted him. Stephen, his excitement increasing more and more, fell into one of those transports of enthusiasm which were called the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His eyes were fixed on high. He witnessed the glory of God and Jesus by the side of his Father and cried out, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God. The whole assembly stopped their ears and threw themselves upon him, gnashing their teeth. He was dragged outside the city and stoned. The witnesses, who, according to the law, had to cast the first stones, divested themselves of their garments and laid them at the feet of a young fanatic named Saul or Paul, who was thinking with secret joy of the renown he was acquiring in participating in the death of a blasphemer. In that epoch, the persecutors of Christianity were not Romans, they were Orthodox Jews. The Romans preserved in the midst of this fanaticism a principle of tolerance and of reason. If we can reproach the imperial authority with anything, it is with being too lenient, and with not having cut short with a stroke the civil consequences of a sanguinary law which visited with death religious derelictions. But as yet the Roman domination was not so complete as it became later. A Stephen's death may have taken place at any time during the years 36, 37, 38. We cannot therefore affirm whether Caiaphas ought to be held responsible for it. Caiaphas was deposed by Lucius Vitellius in the year 36 shortly after the time of Pilate. But the change was inconsiderable. He had for a successor his brother-in-law, Jonathan, son of Hanan. The latter, in turn, was succeeded by his brother, Theophilus, son of Hanan, who continued to pontificate in the house of Hanan till the year 42. Hanan was still alive and possessed of the real power, maintained in his family the principles of pride, severity, hatred against innovators, which were, so to speak, hereditary. The death of Stephen produced a great impression. The proselytes solemnized his funeral with tears and groanings. The separation of the new sectaries from Judaism was not yet absolute. The proselytes and the Hellenists, less strict in regard to orthodoxy than the pure Jews, considered that they ought to render public homage to a man who respected their constitution and whose peculiar beliefs did not put him without the pale of the law. Thus began the era of Christian martyrs. The murder of Stephen was not an isolated event. Taking advantage of the weakness of the Roman functionaries, the Jews brought to bear upon the church a real persecution. It seems that the vexation pressed chiefly on the Hellenists and the proselytes, whose free behavior exasperated the Orthodox. The Church of Jerusalem, though already strongly organized, was compelled to disperse. The Apostles, according to a principle which seems to have seized stronghold of their minds, did not quit the city. It was probably so, too, with the whole purely Jewish group, those who were denominated the Hebrews. But the great community with its common table, its diaconal services, its varied exercises, ceased from that time, and was never reformed upon its first model.
It had endured for three or four years. It was for nascent Christianity an unequaled good fortune that its first attempts at association, essentially communistic, were so soon broken up. Essays of this kind engender such shocking abuses that communistic establishments are condemned to crumble away in a very short time, or to ignore very soon the principle upon which they are founded. Thanks to the persecution of the year 37, the Cenobitic Church of Jerusalem was saved from the test of time. It was nipped in the bud before interior difficulties had undermined it. It remained like a splendid dream, the memory of which animated in their life of trial all those who had formed part of it, like an ideal to which Christianity incessantly aspires, without ever succeeding in reaching its goal. The leading part in the persecution we have just related belonged to that young soul, whom we have above found abetting, as far as in him lay the murder of Stephen. This hot-headed youth, furnished with a permission from the priests, entered houses suspected of harboring Christians, laid violent hold on men and women, and dragged them to prison or before the tribunals. Saul boasted that there was no one of his generation so zealous as himself for the traditions. True it is that often the gentleness and the resignation of the victims astonished him. He experienced a kind of remorse. He fancied he heard these pious women whom, hoping for the kingdom of God, he had cast into prison, saying during the night in a sweet voice, Why persecutest thou us? The blood of Stephen, which had almost smothered him, sometimes troubled his vision. Many things that he had heard said of Jesus went to his heart. This superhuman being, in his ethereal life, whence he sometimes emerged, revealing himself in brief apparitions, haunted him like a specter. But Saul shrunk with horror from such thoughts. He confirmed himself with a sort of frenzy in the faith of his traditions, and meditated new cruelties against those who attacked him. His name had become a terror to the faithful. They dreaded at his hands the most atrocious outrages and the most sanguinary treacheries. The persecution of the year 37 had for its result, as is always the case, the spread of the doctrine which it was wished to arrest. Till now the Christian preaching had not extended far beyond Jerusalem. No mission had been undertaken. Enclosed within its exalted but narrow communion, the Mother Church had spread no halos round herself, nor formed any branches. The dispersion of the little circle scattered the good seed to the four winds of heaven. The members of the Church of Jerusalem, driven violently from their quarters, spread themselves over every part of Judea and Samaria and preached everywhere the kingdom of God. The deacons, in particular, freed from their administrative functions by the destruction of the community, became excellent evangelists. The scene of the first mission, which was soon to embrace the whole basin of the Mediterranean, was the region about Jerusalem, within a radius of two or three days' journey. Philip the deacon was the hero of this first holy expedition. He evangelized Samaria most successfully. Peter and John, after confirming the church of Sebast, departed again for Jerusalem, evangelizing on their way the villages of the country of Samaria.
Philip the deacon continued his evangelizing journeys, directing his steps towards the south, into the ancient country of the Philistines. Azot and the Gaza route were the limits of the first evangelical preachings toward the south. Beyond were the desert and the nomadic life, upon which Christianity has never taken much hold. From Azot, Philip the deacon turned toward the north and evangelized all the coast as far as Caesarea, where he settled and founded an important church. Caesarea was a new city, and the most considerable of Judea. It was in a kind of way the port of Christianity, the point by which the Church of Jerusalem communicated with all the Mediterranean. Many other missions, the history of which is unknown to us, were conducted simultaneously with that of Philip. The very rapidity with which this first preaching was done was the reason of its success. In the year 38, five years after the death of Jesus, and probably one year after the death of Stephen, all this side of Jordan had heard the glad tidings from the mouth of missionaries hailing from Jerusalem. Galilee, on its part, guarded the holy seed and probably scattered it around her, although we know of no mission issuing from that quarter. Perhaps the city of Damascus, from the period at which we are now, had also some Christians, who received the faith from Galilean preachers. The year 38 is marked in the history of the nascent church by a much more important conquest. During that year we may safely place the conversion of that soul, whom we witnessed participating in the stoning of Stephen, and as a principal agent in the persecution of 37, but who now, by a mysterious act of grace, becomes the most ardent of the disciples of Jesus. From the year 38 to the year 44, no persecution seems to have been directed against the church. The faithful were no doubt far more prudent than before the death of Stephen, and avoided speaking in public. Perhaps, too, the troubles of the Jews, who, during all the second part of the reign of Caligula, were at variance with that prince, contributed to favor the nascent sect. This period of peace was fruitful in interior developments. The nascent church was divided into three provinces, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, to which Damascus was no doubt attached. The primacy of Jerusalem was uncontested. The church of the city, which had been dispersed after the death of Stephen, was quickly reconstituted. The apostles had never quitted the city. The brothers of the Lord continued to reside there and to wield a great authority. Peter undertook frequent apostolical journeys in the environs of Jerusalem. He had always a great reputation as a thaumaturgist. At Lida, in particular, he was reputed to have cured a paralytic named Aeneas, a miracle which is said to have led to numerous conversions in the plain of Saron. From Lida he repaired to Joppa, a city which appears to have been a center for Christianity. Peter made a long sojourn at Joppa, at the house of a tanner named Simon, who dwelt near the sea. The organization of works of charity was soon actively entered upon. The germ of those associations of women, which are one of the glories of Christianity, existed in the first churches of Judea. At Jaffa commenced those societies of veiled women, clothed in linen, who were destined to continue through centuries the tradition of charitable secrets. Tabitha was the mother of a family, 
which will have no end as long as there are miseries to be relieved and feminine instincts to be gratified. The Church of Jerusalem was still exclusively composed of Jews and of proselytes. The Holy Ghost being shed upon the uncircumcised before baptism appeared an extraordinary fact. It is probable that there existed thenceforward a party opposed in principle to the admission of Gentiles and that all did not accept the explanations of Peter. The author of the Acts would have us believe that the approbation was unanimous, but in a few years we shall see the question revived with much greater intensity. This matter of the good centurion was, perhaps, like that of the Ethiopian eunuch, accepted as an exceptional case justified by a revelation and an express order from God. Still, the matter was far from being settled. This was the first controversy which had taken place in the bosom of the church. The paradise of interior peace had lasted for six or seven years. About the year 40, the great question upon which depended all the future of Christianity appears thus to have been propounded. Peter and Philip took a very just view of what was the true solution and baptized pagans. The new faith was spread from place to place with marvelous rapidity. The members of the Church of Jerusalem, who had been dispersed immediately after the death of Stephen, pushing their conquest along the coast of Phoenicia, reached Cyprus and Antioch. They were at first guided by the sole principle of preaching the gospel to the Jews only. Antioch, the metropolis of the East, the third city of the world, was the center of this Christian movement in northern Syria. It was a city with a population of more than 500,000 souls and the residence of the imperial legate of Syria. Suddenly advanced to a high degree of splendor by the Seleucidae, it reaped great benefit from the Roman occupation. Antioch, from its foundation, had been wholly a Grecian city. The Macedonians of Antigone and Seleucus had brought with them into that country of the lower Orontes their most lively recollections, their worship, and the names of their country. The Grecian mythology was there adopted as it were in a second home. They pretended to show in the country a crowd of holy places forming part of this mythology. The city was full of the worship of Apollo and of the nymphs. The degradation of the people was awful. The peculiarity of these centers of moral putrefaction is to reduce all the race of mankind to the same level. The depravity of certain Levantine cities, which are dominated by the spirit of intrigue and delivered up entirely to low cunning, can scarcely give us an idea of the degree of corruption reached by the human race at Antioch. It was an inconceivable medley of mountbanks, quacks, buffoons, magicians, miracle-mongers, sorcerers, false priests, a city of races, games, dances, processions, fete, revels of unbridled luxury, of all the follies of the East, of the most unhealthy superstitions, and of the fanaticism of the orgy. The city was very literary, but literary only in the literature of rhetoricians. The beauty of works of art and the infinite charm of nature prevented this moral degradation from sinking entirely into hideousness and vulgarity. The Church of Antioch 
owed its foundation to some believers originally from Cyprus and Cyrene, who had already been much engaged in preaching. Up to this time they had only addressed themselves to the Jews. But in a city where pure Jews, Jews who were proselytes, people fearing God, or half-Jewish pagans and pure pagans, lived together, exclusive preaching restricted to a group of houses became impossible. That feeling of religious aristocracy, on which the Jews of Jerusalem so much prided themselves, did not exist in those large cities, where civilization was altogether of the profane sort, where the scope was greater, and where prejudices were less firmly rooted. The Cypriot and Kyrenian missionaries were then constrained to depart from their rule. They preached to the Jews and to the Greeks indifferently. The success of the Christian preaching was great. A young, innovating and ardent church, full of the future, because it was composed of the most diverse elements, was quickly founded. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit were there poured out, and it was easy to perceive that this new church, emancipated from the strict Mosaism, which erected an insuperable barrier around Jerusalem, would become the second cradle of Christianity. Assuredly, Jerusalem must remain forever the capital of the Christian world. Nevertheless, the point of departure of the Church of the Gentiles, the primordial focus of Christian missions, was, in truth, Antioch. It was there that, for the first time, a Christian church was established, freed from the bonds of Judaism. It was there that the great propaganda of the apostolic age was established. It was there that St. Paul assumed a definite character. Antioch marks the second halting place of the progress of Christianity and, in respect of Christian nobility, neither Rome, nor Alexandria, nor Constantinople can be at all compared with it. The foundation of Christianity, from this point of view, is the greatest work that the men of the people have ever achieved. Very quickly, without doubt, men and women of the high Roman nobility joined themselves to the church. At the end of the first century, Flavius Clemens and Flavia Domitilia show us Christianity penetrating almost into the palace of the Caesars. End of section 6